0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited by State Law.
1: State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Edward Champion, Managing Editor of Reluctant Habits, and how he's exploring audio storytelling as an art form. Let's begin. Hi, Ed, how are you? Hey, how you doing, buddy? Thanks I'm for pretty, having me. Thank you for joining us. It's, I think we're going to be speaking about a pretty interesting topic and unique um, because you've done a lot of things, but now you're focusing a lot on um, audio drama. But before we delve into that, just if you can give people a background about who you are and, and how you came to this point, that would be great.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the funny thing about life. Sometimes you pursue a journey and you end up in a number of different places. And I certainly have. I started off wanting to be a filmmaker uh, with the film school, but I was always reading and I was always writing. And what ended up happening was that I started blogging at a time when blogs were not around. Uh, They were very, very new. I was actually hooked in with a lot of People who are now uh, millionaires (laughs) uh, in San Francisco because I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I then found that people uh, really liked my writing voice, and I had editors come to me. And I then began this uh, really strange career, so to speak, as a writer. I contributed to numerous newspapers and magazines and websites. And from there, I actually got in very early on the podcasting scene and I ran a podcast called the Bat Segundo Show, which ran for about ten years, in which I interviewed 550 writers, ranging from uh, and, then the, and also not writers. Um, I mean, you know, I got to hang out with David Lynch. I went to the Ozick's house. Uh, Nora Ephron was. I, I was amazed. I got to talk with her. Octavia Butler. I talked. I, I talked to Thomas Dish. I, I mean, Samuel Delaney. The list goes on. You can you can check it out in the archives. But I think that what I really wanted. Do during this time, because i had also had some side quests, so to speak, or rather uh, a, 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 an acknowledgement of what I really wanted to do, that I didn't actually pursue doing little theater things here and there. I wrote and directed fringe plays. Um, I always wanted to tell stories. I wrote several novels. I came very close to getting an agent uh, multiple times, but just couldn't. And I was in this sort of frustrating place. And also I found that my writing style was uh, being uh, misinterpreted or rather not misinterpreted, interpreted in a way that was considered uh, pugnacious and not really who I was. And um, so um, I had to go through a, a period where I needed to figure out what it was that I really wanted to do. And for many years, I had always wanted to do an audio drama, uh, so going back as far back as 2007. I listened to old-time radio growing up. I loved all the stories, but I actually took the form seriously, and I felt that I was sort of in this bubble. So about three to four years ago, um, I was having a soul-searching period, and I started listening to this podcast called the Audio Drama Production Podcast, which was at the time run out of Scotland by these uh, two Scotsmen. And that was what basically opened up my world and changed my life and pretty much caused me to be what I am now, which is uh, a writer, a showrunner, a producer, someone who is managing more than four dozen actors and who also uh, does engineering, editing, Foley work, which is really fun. Um, You know, you can imagine yours truly basically dragging out every article of clothing that he owns and slapping them in front of the mic until I get an actual wing sound, uh, a convincing wing sound for a talking, a giant talking bird in a fantasy story. Uh, This is um, a much better place for me. Uh, I am supremely happy. The uh, listenership has really connected with these stories. The other thing I think that happened here was that I was really afraid of being uh, emotionally real. And really sort of putting my heart completely out there. And for many years, I I basically retreated by this sort of clever and pugnacious writing voice that really was not who I was, and that actually probably prevented me from connecting uh, with people and also probably uh, caused, uh, indefinitely caused numerous people to misinterpret me. And if it, it met me you know, you would know the kind of person I am. But the thing that is amazing about audio drama is, first off, you know, I've always been into books and really, as you probably know, running your uh, podcast, uh, radio and the act of reading share this common emotional intimacy that is unlike any other medium, save for perhaps theater, when you go and see especially a small Theatrical show, maybe like an off-off-Broadway kind of thing, where you really are sharing this emotional presence in the air. The only real art that gets to that is the act of reading and the act of listening. And I have heard from so many people who who really relate to these stories, um, especially women, who I, I I've been really surprised by. They they have written me and said like How did you How did you know about uh, what we're dealing with, this struggle between the personal and the professional. I, I, basically, nobody else was really doing it, and nobody else was doing it in this form. So, audio drama, which I'm obviously really crazy about, and I can talk about it length. I mean, it's this incredible realm where you can bring together disparate and marginalized voices from all across the world, and you can bring them together, and suddenly, um, you realize that that we're actually out there i think we're I think culturally we are going through a moment right now where there are a lot of questions that we haven't asked and a lot of answers we're seeking that we're afraid to seek and my feeling is that any form of artistic expression or even nonfiction narrative expression really should be in pursuit of that. I mean, you know, we're talking right now shortly after Donald Glover released this amazing uh video, This is America, under the childish Gambino label. Mm-hmm. And people are dissecting this uh rightly because there's all sorts of fascinating imagery that he's encoded in this, but it also has this incredible visceral front. And it's the most popular video right now. And I think that speaks to um Needs to go where culture is obligated to go, and where we, as culture makers and culture taste makers or or culture consumers, really need to embrace. Because the difference and the intimate is really what makes everything we do so special and beautiful.
1: So, with with I guess uh, you said about the struggle within the personal and the creative in the digital media space, do you think that's just mostly for more creative writers or do you think journalists have that have that um, struggle as well? When you've spoken to people and gone... I
0: think, no, I, I mean, I, I, have, I have worked as a journalist and I do think that whether it's fiction or non-fiction, we're all confronting that question of, okay, here's this line that I really need to walk across in order to evolve as a person who makes something uh, how do i do that uh, because, you know, and it's so easy given you know the marketplace and given the need to survive and given the need to pay your rent to basically say well well wait a minute i can get so i can do what i usually do and this is a very safe space for me and this will allow me to gain some kind of reputation but it really is, I think, the trap of stability, and it really is essentially a regressive trajectory, and not especially healthy, both uh, for yourself and also for culture at large, and also in connecting to whoever your audience is. Um, I, you know, I think that it's it's a very common problem that is really not talked about, but that everyone faces. And and the, the, your best way to go about that is to adopt some risk to be more vulnerable, to be more emotional and intimate, whether it's really taking the time as a journalist to get a source to open up and to get a source to trust you, or whether it's telling a story that deals with a difficult, deeply nested problem. That is beside the heart, if that makes any sense.
1: I think, it, it, like I understand to the point. We, you know, no, I understand. Um, it's just it's very deep, and it, everyone has their own interpretation. So I don't want to make any conclusions from from what you said. So. Um,
0: oh sure, 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 sure. I, I I hear you, and everyone goes about things a different way, and some people are are have different goals. Speaking to my goals, I mean, my I I am I am more interested in sort of. Evolving a voice and evolving a culture to the best of my ability, and that is obviously a particular pursuit that is sometimes opposed to capitalistic forces or the need to survive. And I completely understand that. And uh, and I'm not necessarily going to impugn anyone who uh, who has that particular trajectory. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I can I can certainly speak to to, to my own journey. So. <laughs>
1: And let's 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 talk about the specific steps on on how you built the um, audio drama very shortly. But let's let's take a step back. So podcasts sure. have been podcasts have been around for quite some time, and I, yes. I think to to my to my knowledge, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I think you um, started with audio books first off, and it was just very much interpretation, um, just the audio version of a of a novel or a book. And then after that, people started doing their podcasts. It still wasn't mainstream, but know with the um, adaptation of technology and just becoming more mainstream podcasts have become more mainstream like I mentioned so what how have you seen podcasting come to the point where it is and how did you define or how did you identify that audio drama now is the time to start this because I've seen I've I've heard I've seen how long your audio podcasts are, and it's a couple of hours so it's not something I think you can listen at once so
0: yes well, and, and and it definitely takes a, a long time to make. But I think you're actually very cogent to identify something quite interesting in podcasting. I mean, podcasting itself has been around largely in you know random people talking for a long time. But I think I think you're right to point to audio dramas' relatively later resurgence because. I think what happened was was that nonfiction radio began to establish greater intimacy. You have, for example, you know, Death, Sex, and Money, which is an incredible interview show or uh, in which the interviewer, Anna Sale, really has this incredible ability to get people to talk about the most vulnerable things. Uh, you have, you know, podcasts like Criminal where um, um, the narrator speaks in this strangely soothing voice about the darkest crimes imaginable and the darkest stories imaginable, but yet it's a weird kind of comfort. Uh, You have people sort of, you know, you have a a podcast like Strangers, where um, it's this incredible meditation on what it is to be lonely and to have relationships. And I think what ended up happening is is that podcasting in its nonfiction form had to develop a kind of mature intimacy, a way of expanding upon the present vernacular and making it more artistic and honed, much like a uh, a well-crafted feature piece uh, in journalism. And as we saw more of this, we also saw audio drama pure fiction, pure stories, also start to emerge. And they likewise were sort of listening to each other and feeding off of each other, and gradually sort of saying, oh, we can do this. Well, what if I put this on top of it? But it is, I, I think, um, I, I, it is interesting how storytelling, in terms of invented storytelling was later, and how we were very much acclimatized to audiobooks, as you also say. But I think that audiobooks, quite frankly, to be perfectly blunt, there are a lot of really interesting audiobooks. For example, uh, George Saunders' "Lincoln in the Bardo" had this very large cast, which I thought was, you know, was a very interesting improvement upon uh, what is essentially one person reading prose. But it's not writing specifically for the ear. It's not actually honing something so that you could achieve this kind of intimacy that you you get in droves and quite beautifully in nonfiction. And I think that I was driven into audio drama because I really wanted to capture the intimacy that I was I was hearing from a lot of these great nonfiction podcasts. I wanted to see if I could tell stories in a way where you would completely believe them even with wild genre elements like giant rats and and talking birds, and uh, exuberant receptionist character who shows up very frequently and portals opening up into other universes, the question I had was, okay, what if what if John Cassavetes or Mike Lee or some or Jane Campion, or some really heavy hitting, realistic filmmaker approached genre? and that is sort of how i went into it and i found that once i started embracing that it became very relaxed and fluid and uh, for me to 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 really write from the heart and and i'm not poo-pooing genre genre has done this for many years in literature and has i mean and there was a time not so long ago before everyone loved speculative fiction and comic books and all that in which if you did embrace genre you were considered something of a leper you were considered uh, i mean it was it was you were a freak and even if you wrote that stuff as going as far back as the 60s and the 70s you were completely ostracized from serious consideration now as culture has crossed a number of bridges and has created more connections, and has created more opportunities for people to talk with each other, we're now able to see that there are more of us who are open-minded and who are willing to mesh and who are willing to experiment and tinker, and more importantly, really feel with our hearts so that we can take some of these interesting, often accidental subconscious Connections and meshing and uh, and uh, blending and, and and largely, you know, not really knowing what it is until it's actually made. Suddenly, we are now able to coordinate in a way that we have not necessarily been able to do before, or at least it's a little easier. And what this means is uh, a really exciting time for culture. I mean, you know, I don't think it's an accident that we are living know in, in a time where I mean well you know television is is incredible I, I mean i I'm a big reader but i I have to I have to commend TV for for putting out things like Atlanta and Dear white people and insecure and uh, transparency I mean I could go on uh, it, it's it's or you know there's a wonderful um, flea bag for example mm-hmm. I mean I, I it's it's now it's now to the point where like the the other the other side of the coin. Is that now there's too much? There's almost too much culture to consume because people are really seizing the reins of what is possible and how we can express what I think has been a, almost a starvation of emotional intimacy. I, I think I think what the, the the weird flip side, another flip side of the digital coin, is that people feel connected but lonely, but they're able to somehow find ways of connecting through the emotionally intimate connections that uh culture can offer and maybe it might actually encourage them to be more emotionally intimate in their real lives and maybe talk with people. I, I think there's a there's a fascinating starvation going on that I think culture can offer some guides to and and maybe you know begin a dialectic about it. I mean begin it's it's in that dialectic my friend. So um, um, this I, I hope I didn't ramble too much, but I, I, I that's somewhat address your question?
1: No, I, I took from that that you found that because of the flip side of digital, there was um, a yeah. lack of um, connections. And I guess that's how you, besides having your need of building something like uh, the gray, gray area pod, yeah, that, that people also had that. And I guess you found that audience and you were able to tap into that. Is that correct?
0: Yes, I mean, I, you know, the situation was was really um, with the gray area. I, I actually was not actively seeking an audience. I, if if anything, I would say that the gray area is the most creatively free I have ever felt in my life. I listened and responded and included, and that's all I really did. And I also ultimately tried to tell the truest possible stories that I could, even when there were wild genre elements, but ultimately it really had to be rooted in real. I think also um, I, the other thing that was probably a contributing factor to to the gray area was I was also taking a number of improv classes. And that actually also allowed me to get closer to the essence of a story and the essence of a scene and to also be a keen and heightened Listening mode, which I had always listened. I mean, you know, you don't you don't do ten years of a of a a podcast without (laughs) picking up a few listening skills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, but you know, but I was able to um, to take a lot of that those listening skills and that the ability to pay attention to some of the most arcane and highly specific details and apply them in a in a more fruitful sense, which was largely the organic nature of existence, uh, it be, it be more of an existential listening rather than a sort of vaguely academic structural listening, which I, I know some people liked, but, you know, I, I think the reason why people tired of the Bat show and why I tired of it is that, you know, you can only go so far uh, just dissecting books and, and, and uh, unpacking them in relation to lives. I, I, I know that as I went on with the Bat Show, I took on more nonfiction books and it wasn't because I, I didn't love novels or short stories or poetry. It was largely because that I think I was subconsciously moving towards this these the bigger existential questions and wanted to find a way to pursue them through my voice, and through a voice, and and the thing that also I also the deal I have working with actors, and I tell every actor who works with me, I said, look, you are an equal collaborator. I am only the person who who I will I will shape your performance. I will I write the scripts, but if you have a way of expressing yourself or interpreting this, or if you have an idea, I'm I mean I am very open. And the other thing I do when I record with actors, it's a very it's a very it's a very intimate. Process and it's it's beautiful sometimes. I mean, uh, the rule we have is that we can talk about any part of our lives. Like I will talk about any aspect of my life in this realm because it's it's protected realm and, and it's it's very comfortable. It's very relaxed, and the idea here is for us to be as close as we as, as close and as vulnerable as we can to our hearts in order to get the most real performances. And that's the rule I have, and what that does is that establishes an incredibly beautiful trust in which, you know, you and the actor are, are working together and you're 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 knowing each other and you're listening to each other and you're reading each other and you're so open to to just all this stuff inside your heart that you really don't reveal in regular life because we're caught in, in as I said, the the Trap of stability, the trap of uh, looking our best online so that we get more likes and favorites, and that's just not real. I mean, I'm sorry, it just isn't. I mean, it's good sometimes in terms of translating into you know getting people who are interested in your show. I, I've digressed heavily, I know, from your question, and and I, which was basically like, did I do this with any intent of uh, pursuing an audience? And no, I. But what I did do is I just kept my heart as open as I could, and the audience came. Because by doing that, by making something different, and by you know, letting some people in, in the audio drama community know about it, you know, inevitably, people latched onto it, because there, there is apparently nothing else like the gray area out there in the audio drama realm and in the podcasting realm.
1: How do you define your audience? Uh, who is your audience? Like, who who would you how would you define them as?
0: My well, you know, my audience are people. I think who, um, yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I guess I really, I really don't think in terms of demographics. I think that the types of people who do listen to my show because I've had conversations with quite a few of them are people who are seeking something bigger in their lives. Uh, people who may be may feel alone or are looking and trying to summon the courage to uh, make some big bold moves and people who are actually like really have a rich inner life that nobody knows about i've heard a lot from those people i mean and and i tell you these are these are sometimes incredibly heartbreaking stories. I I, I all you, you can do is be as generous as and as kind as you can and as encouraging as you can to make sure that these people find the courage to, to really make that inner life happen. So I guess my audience is a particular type like that. I mean, you know, I have also audience members who just like really fun goofball fantasy because there's i mean i do try to make these things entertaining as well and certainly i have a good time you know and, and my actors have a good time recording these and we have a lot of fun but but i guess for one thing i'm not very good at these marketing questions because i don't i feel that if something is well made it will find its audience eventually and it's not your job as an artist to I mean, obviously I have people I have beta readers and I have beta listeners and I have people who I trust who listen to early versions and who give me feedback and who are not gonna bullshit me. Because I think that's really important. But I, I mean, you know, everybody needs to have that. But uh, it's not really it's more in the interest of making the best art uh, as opposed to, you know, winning the biggest audience. I mean, you know, to, to sort of the one example I, I, I use is that okay, so 20 years ago, it was video store culture. Uh, I'm sure where where you were, and I'm sure where and, and definitely where I was. And I was really into horror movies back then, still am, still love them. Horror movies are great. Um, and now they're getting mainstream with uh, this uh, this new movie, Unquiet Place, but um, or Qu- a quiet place rather, an unquiet mm-hmm. place. I'm confusing it with K. Redfield Jameson. Anyway, uh, so uh, so. Anyway, if you ask people 20 years ago, uh, Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi, the man behind the Evil Dead trilogy, and Peter Jackson, the man behind Dead Alive, these guys are going to make the biggest movies. Uh, Sam Raimi is going to make the Spider-Man movies, and Peter Jackson is going to make Lord of the Rings, and these are going to be the most successful Box office movies. If you said that to people, they would not have believed you. I think the reason why those became successful are be, is because Raimi and Jackson, among like you know, like any decent artists, always kept to their instincts. And I think that if you are spending more of your time, and it's a, it's a longer, yeah, it's it's a longer time to do it, but I think it's ultimately more rewarding. If you spend your time honing your instincts, whatever you do, whether it be a writer, a poet, musician, a journalist, a podcaster, a tax attorney, whatever, you know, if you spend your time on that, that is better for the long haul because you will establish a way of making and creating and working and living that is. Eventually, going to be understood because you will master certain cadences that actually are parallel to the more crass. Let's build the biggest audience we can. And the other thing you you have to realize is that you know you cannot please everyone all the time. So you know I I I no longer I used to spend a lot of time actually like probably ten years ago. Especially when I was getting attention for my uh, for for my writing, and I was getting um, gigs from various newspapers and all that, I spent too much time angling to build an audience. I mean, maybe not not angling, but I just I, I I cared too much about the audience. And by care, I, it's not to mean that I, I respect an audience's intelligence. I, I, I believe in an audience's intelligence. I believe very strongly in that. I believe that they have the, that they're looking and that they're hungry for this kind of thing. And certainly, my theory has has certainly borne out with the first season of the Gray Area. Uh, I, I couldn't I, I couldn't be more happier with with the reception. But by uh, worrying about the audience, I, I worried more about how whether, uh, whether in terms of numbers and that is really not the way to go about this i mean you sort of have to adopt this mentality of making and evolving and getting better and i think your audience will go along with the journey and i wish i would have learned that lesson earlier because i i probably would have i would have made either this or something else earlier in my life um i probably would not have uh, gone onto the internet with such a sort of often cluelessly iconoclastic voice (laughs) uh, I I, I mean I I also would have cultivated the courage to be more positive or to rather to embrace the positivism that I always had and and be more upfront about it than I had been in the past because I didn't allow people to see it and that was a big mistake I made and I paid for it in droves but the happy aftermath of this is that now I can make something that is entirely centered around my connection with other people and just be as, and I'm and now, I, I mean, I'm just constantly surprised and, and, and humbled every day by this. And I, I see every new development in the gray area it just really surprises me. I mean, and, and mm. now that I'm in pre-production on the second season, it's just, I'm, I'm really just, Job smack, so to speak, about uh, about about what keeps happening. And, and, and this is going to be great. And it's and it's largely because I guess I learned that it was more important to sort of kind of be aware of the of the instinct of an audience and, 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 and to match your instincts. But, you know, like, go for the long game. It's so much better. It's you'll you'll be much happier, you'll you'll be more at peace, and you'll connect more with yourself and the material, and you will connect strongly, more strongly with your audience. Yeah. Long ass answer, I know.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's, that's fine. Um, I just I just want to um, just move towards the business side a bit, just so that we can balance out the conversation. So, how do you make sure that you balance the creativity that you have and look at focus on the long game? but still be able to run this operation? And, and how do you make sure that you're not, because it seems that you're not as, as involved in the business side of of this, of this your setup. How do you make sure that everything's running smoothly so that you do have that creative, um freedom to do whatever you like and not be able to sort certain things?
0: Yeah, a, a, a lot of this is, I mean, we. I just actually, um, the, I took on the brunt of the first season myself. And that was fun, but it was also extremely exhausting. And now that I've geared up on the second season, I have uh, actually enlisted uh, an associate producer because we're now dealing with twice as much material, twice as many actors. And the other thing that I'm we're actually working on is being better about getting the word out and doing more promotion and doing more publicity and actually building more... Relationships with various people, uh, so that we can continue to do this for the long haul. I mean, a lot of this is just really the best way to 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 go about making anything. And 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 learning is is to make something. I mean, because you will you will learn all sorts of things just by the act of making something. I learned a lot about what I was good at and what I was not good at in the first season, and what I need to do to improve it. And what I need to do also to maybe make this thing more more receptive to a larger audience, and also uh, to try to you know try to turn this around so that you know we're actually generating some money because uh, this is uh, this like any business. Uh, you have to put in you know, a few years of losing money before you actually get a turnaround. Having said that, however, a lot of this is just being very pragmatic in terms of what your time commitment is, allowing enough room to delegate, uh, allowing enough room to trust, and allowing enough room in your life to have some time for yourself because nobody, no matter how prodigious and prolific that they are... Uh, no one's a machine. No one is, uh, and and people who sort of go about this like that are really going to shoot themselves in the foot and no business strategy or side hustle that they have is really going to atone for that. So you you have to just be, you have to give yourself enough time and be realistic about the logistics. And you also have to also be, you know, relatively humble and and realistic about the reception. And and so that, I mean, the way I've approached everything in in my sort of weird checkered career is to assume that nothing will work out, (laughs) which is probably like, you know, uh, a really silly way to approach things. But um, what ends up happening is, is that, you know, this is what keeps me constantly busy. Because if I ask for something, then much to my surprise, a lot of people say yes to me. A lot of people enjoy working with me. A lot of people enjoy setting up relationships with me. But I still carry on with this kind of, oh, well, you know, what's the harm? May as well ask for it. And then what ends up happening is is that, you know, <laughs> it works out. This happened the other day. I, I got a very prominent person involved with the gray area just yesterday and I assumed that it, I would it would never work out, but I did send a very careful and and well crafted uh, and earnest and attentive email respectful of this person, and to my surprise, it worked out. And and that's I've largely felt that I've been sort of getting away with getting away with living this life sometimes because it's loads of fun. And I, you know, like like any of us, you know, all of us have some, you know, doubts and fears and anxieties, and I certainly do. But I guess my confidence in terms of uh, as, as, as an expressive person largely comes from the fun of something working out. I mean, I'm, my attitude is, is I'm going to have a fun time no matter what, and there is very little that people can do to stop me from living that really fun, expressive life. Uh, but then, you know, you, you you then want to like get other people, you know, on board your project and all that. And then, you know, you just put something out there and then it just kind of happens. And, and maybe that might run counter to, I mean, I realize your, your program is more related towards uh, industry-based concerns and uh, business, but I actually think this is a very pragmatic way of approaching any strategy because then any natural. Expansion of what you do that occurs, it sort of emboldens you to sort of like say, oh well, if they're going to involve me with this, then they're certainly not going to involve me with this, and then they do. (laughs) This is, and then you you keep your you keep your standards kind of um, low. I mean, I mean, let me let me scratch that. You keep your expect your standards are not low. Your standards are high, but you keep your expectations low. so that you so that you know you don't expect something to work out and then something works out and then you know you work on something for two years next thing you know all of a sudden like you're you've built relationships you're getting offers for voiceover work you're getting i've been writing scripts i've been yeah i mean there's some weird little uh, offshoots.
1: great area sorry your great area isn't your full-time gig at the moment no it is not okay so that's that's pretty much you you you're, you're doing other projects to fund fund your passion with gray area pod. Is that correct? Yeah,
0: gray area. Yes, yeah.
1: Okay. And just just want to ask you how how have you been able to set up gray area pod and and the audio drama? So, if someone else wanted to do something similar, what would be the steps for them? Given that you've gone through this process and you've, you said that you've learned a lot of the. Strengths and limitations, and and you mentioned some of the lessons about delegating. What's some of the what's the practical steps you would take to to, to start up an audio drama?
0: Well, the first thing you want you need to do. I mean, first of all, making an audio drama takes a great deal of time, and a lot okay. of that is the how
1: editing. The, how many like would it take hours per day, or like how how long would that take?
0: Oh well, I mean, to produce the the first season that took me a year and a half. I mean, it's it's and that was working every single day on it, um, and and so ranging from like, depending upon what time I had, ranging from like two hours to as long as eighteen. It is a huge undertaking, but on the other hand, I'm also I'm also doing pretty much everything. So that is also probably one of the reasons why you know I mean I'm I'm wearing multiple hats. But I did, you know, and I've learned from that, which is also one of the reasons why I got an associate producer, is because I wanted to make sure that I could, um, I could make this a little bit more manageable. And so I, I'm not, you know, I mean, so the the thing I would say is, is that you first, it's it's very, it's a very time consuming process. But you, you, what you should probably do is listen to a bunch of audio dramas that are out there, the leading ones um, ranging. I mean, the bright sessions is probably like the flagship audio drama right now. It's an incredible uh, podcast and it has managed to actually get a TV development deal. So we're now starting to see the um, the floodgates open on that realm. I, um, producers who are starved for material or are sick and tired of, rebooting and remaking 1980s franchises are now starting to say, well, hey, look at these folks. They're actually um, producing stuff. Um, Wolf 359 is a very good one. I love that one. Winnebago Warrior. You know, I'd have to go. The Amelia Project is a really fun one that is out of the UK. I'm crazy about that. That's, why, that's my, of, of the recent ones, that's probably my, my favorite. I mean, you know, uh, there are also uh, audio dramas on the fringe ends. Like Smash Cut uh, is is does a lot of experimental stuff and really gets inside queer culture and is and is amazing. You know, uh, Issa Rae was even before she did Insecure, she was doing um, a, a wonderful uh, uh, audio drama that's available through Audible called um, Was It Fruits? That one's very good. You know, I think you need to figure out like first of all, if it, you have to be very passionate about the the actual form if you're not crazy about it then why would we think that you would be capable of of creating an audio drama that is is on that level or even even like you know a third of that level so then what you need to do is you need to write the stories i mean the the two most important things i would say are stories and performance. If you do not, and, and editing as well, you got to have pacings. pacing. Three, a, a Spanish inquisition here. Three. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, you know, if you don't have a great, the best story that you can make, if you don't have the best talent that you can, you can have recording with you. And if you don't have the best editing to make sure that you can hold on to your listeners, I, I am very careful. Like, if you listen to the first minute of the gray area, you will be in the story. That is entirely by design because I do not, I mean, I have I have listened to so many podcasts and they go on and on and ramble and you lose and, and people don't have time. You have to get someone within a minute or else you've lost an audience member. So there's, there's your audience. Uh,
1: <laughs> there's your
0: audience question for you, sir. Um, so, um, then you have to learn how all the technical stuff. I mean, there is no the thing that's actually really fun and and thrilling about making audio drama is that there is no real manual on how to do it. Uh and and I've worked with other audio dramatists and I've talked with many audio drama producers and there is no there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. I mean, there there are so many different ways of making this and some people have like full-fledged studios. Some people, like me, I have baffling and record it out of their apartment. Some people record with public Some people do it one-on-one. Some people do it in person. Some people do it remotely. You know, there are a number of uh, invaluable... Uh, resources out there through facebook the audio drama production podcast group for example in which people talk with each other about uh, how to make things and you can meet you can you can end up having these conversations so you you learn things i had to learn a lot of technical stuff i learned about reaper and rx i learned i learned about mic placement i learned about how to engineer a, a show so that it actually sounded you know uh, as good as radio and matched uh decibel levels so that it would be you know it could be you can, it can hypothetically be on
1: radio. How long did it take you to learn all this?
0: I was learning as I was making it. I, I mean, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into this rather cluelessly. I mean, I had written—I've written scripts before. I've done under pseudonyms, little work here and there, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm not going to tell you about, sir. But um, I have—I've um, written, you know, I've written in all forms. But I, you know, I didn't know. What the audio drama script format was, so I went to the BBC site and I, I grabbed their template, studied it, and then created a template in Word so that I could I could match that, and then just wrote my first audio drama that way, which actually came about because I pitched an idea to um, to two guys who were running a fantasy series, and uh, they loved my ideas and they especially loved this one, and so I spent two weeks writing my first ever audio drama script. And had a blast. Had, it was just, it was like completely liberating. I was like, I and, I, and because I had actually like made, I had written and produced for the ear in nonfiction, I found, and because also I was a very heavy reader and heavy writer, I was able to really move to the form quite effortlessly, or at least, its I mean, not effortlessly. I mean, there obviously is a lot of work, but it was a very sort of easy transition for me because I had been doing this, in a slightly different way for 10 years, just not telling stories. And something really funny happened. I mean, so so this fantasy series, unfortunately, did not end up collapsing. But I did have one script, and I said to myself, um, and, and that script, by the way, became uh, the episode known as Loopholes, which I had a blast with, and that had like 110 tracks. It was just completely crazy. Uh, but I, I then said to myself, okay, well, I did one. How many of these... Can I, can I write, you know, let's just go ahead and, and go with this. And I spent the next three to four months, I wrote 20 scripts, 20 scripts. And this is basically these, this, these initial 20 scripts are the template for basically four seasons of Great area. And the first five were taken and expanded for season one. But what I, I, I was basically just starving to tell these stories. I had all these stories inside me that I just had not realized were there. And then I started creating an Uber story to kind of, you know, uh, match everything because I noticed the demons kept cropping up. And then I created like notes on what the portals were all about. There's like a, a huge 20 page single spaced dossier that I've created that will, that, in which just information is gradually being doled out over the course of four years, in which you, you, this is going to be revealed. Um, you know, and I also had a lot of fun with setting up interconnections. Like, you listen to The Gray Area now, it's an anthology show. But if you listen closely, you hear, oh, well, that character on that voicemail becomes a character in another story. Or, oh, why is this weird man who has a funny voice called the receptionist? Why is he showing up? Why is he so cheery? And that question is answered. So the, the idea here is, is you hook in your audience early with Uh, mysteries and questions but you don't want to be an asshole and you don't want to pull a Damon Lindelof and not have a plan for the show and pull a lost you want to actually have a situation which there are enough questions answered over the course Uh, you know you kind of gauge it and you gauge it through both reading and you gauge it by sort of creating little charts of when you're revealing certain things and also when you're introducing new questions and you have to also create a lot of room for ambiguity because, in my experience anyway, I, I don't think – I don't really don't think that there's a lot of great art out there that doesn't have a single question of ambiguity. I mean the whole point of art – is for us to, to want to talk about it and to speculate about what might have happened, to answer enough questions to satisfy the audience while simultaneously uh, creating enough ambiguity so that you you actually also you get the audience in your corner and 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 you intrigue them because you know you don't want to stagnate and you also don't want to just burden them with too many questions and you also don't want to make those questions too obvious. There you have to. I, I've done my best with this to really. Not be that type of person, as I said earlier. I don't want to be the clever type. I, I want to actually be more of the emotional type. So anything I'm, anything clever that I'm doing with this show is really very deep. You know, there there are basically like about four or five levels on which the show works. And if you want, you can go down deep and find that stuff. I mean, it certainly keeps me uh, cheery and and productive. But you know, you can still listen to each story on its own and understand what's going on you know it's i guess that's how i respect the audience because i i understand that there's an audience that wishes to deep dive and there's and that's a uh, a smaller audience than the audience that just wants to listen to a really good gripping yarn and so that's how i respect the audience and and i i wish i would have actually done that before before i even did any of this because i i was too i was too interested in this in this idea of, ha ha, well, the audience will never get this reference or never see this thing. And that's really you being an asshole. (laughs) It's not, it's not not actually like, you know, uh, invite people into the world that you're doing and you can do that by like, you know, if you have that, that, and I certainly do uh, vary that as much as you can so that you're happy and you get that, but at the same time, it doesn't get in the way of telling a story. And I've strayed a lot yet again, as I tend to do. <laughs>
1: you're covering, no, that's fun. um, you're covering a lot of aspects in terms of the storytelling process, which I appreciate, and I'm sure the audiences would appreciate and so sure. let's 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 look at the um setup so with with the character you said you're now managing over forty sorry over four thousand actors, you've got your editors, yeah. and everything else as well. Yes. How how are we able to find for find them and and the second part to that question is how do you come up with the stories to to match with the relevant characters that you have? Well, you that's that's an interesting actors, not characters. Sorry, actors.
0: Oh you no know, no no that's I totally I totally heard you on that I totally and that's a really um, fun question to answer. Uh, so basically, the bare bones of the Grey Area cast came from my improv classes uh, when you improvise with people you really get to know them especially you get to know them as a person and you get to know them as a performer really quick and I was in various practice groups and so as such at this time I really in season one I had no I had no idea who the voices would be but what I would do is I would play with someone and, and we'd have a lot of fun and then I'd say hmm you know maybe that person might work for this and this strategy actually worked very Well, I got a few people from listening to other shows. They had a voice that I, I really loved and then I checked them out and I, and I tried to identify the very qualities that other um, producers were not finding and that I could see so that by the time I approached them, I could offer them a really interesting opportunity. I can offer them a, a scenario in which like, hey, you know, um, I really love your work. I heard you in this. I, heard, I saw you in this. But and, and I have a role here that I think you'll be good. And and that actually will tap into this particular quality. The other thing I do is, is, okay, so the way I approach auditions is that I have people either send me in a reel, but honestly, for, for very important characters, I just meet with people. I just talk with people. I find the idea of auditioning so appalling. I mean, it needs to be done because you need to get a, a thumb test. But you know, it's much better for you to just have a conversation with someone and get to know who they are so and, and see if you guys are connecting. That way, you'll know if they're really good for your uh, production. Uh, one of my heroes, David Lynch. I know that he does this. He doesn't actually really audition. He just he just talks with people, and I feel that just by talking and listening to people and shooting the shit with people, you're going to get a better sense of who you want to work with. So, uh, the original staple came from like the improv classes, but I still had more roles to fill, and so I just used um, backstage. And uh, backstage is is a very well known. Uh, acting websites. And honestly, I'm in New York too. So it helps that we're just completely like overpopulated with actors. But, um, but you know, I have found that that is really enough, but I've also found that like, if I heard a voice who I liked, who I couldn't cast, I'm someone who likes to work with people. I'm someone who likes to find like, oh, I really love this guy, but oh, not quite. But you know what? Maybe there's this character. And so what I tend to do is I like to create opportunities. And I like to create opportunities, especially when I really get along with someone. And and, and they seem to be someone who not only is an incredible talent, but is also a fun person to hang with. So I try to just I approach it that way, and and so thus far I I have I have I mean I just did the casting for um, the second season. I had I did twenty roles at one time. It was crazy. I have filled That's all but two of those roles. It's a very big. One. Yeah, I filled all plus my pre-existing cast. So so I filled all but two of those roles, and I'm very close on the last two. And I did that within like a three-week period. That's how uh, how good it is. But also I. Also, the other thing I do is I don't. I if there's someone who's who's really cool, I'm gonna I'm gonna call them on the phone. I'm gonna talk to them like, and listen to them like a regular person. You know, you'll know who is right for your project, uh, whether it be audio drama or even anything else, just by talking with people. I mean, I we don't do enough of that in this day and age. I know there's a great aversion, but like. It's no accident that that our texting culture has led to ghosting, okay? <laughs> you know? I mean, that it's so easy to just casually remove yourself from someone when it's just words. But when you're talking with someone, when you're meeting with someone, it's a whole different ballgame, and you're really more willing to know a person and, and accept a person's totality, which I really feel is what life should be all about. So, did that, did that answer your question? I
1: hope. No, no, it does. Yeah, and I guess just being mindful of time. Just um, I, I want to speak a bit more about your direction moving forward, if that's okay. So sure. You mentioned a bit about some. of, You said that you're focusing a lot more around considering where it's going to be, how the show is going to be seen online, where the marketing initiatives, and, and stuff like that. Are you able to just provide a bit of just a, your vision and direction ahead for that? Well, at the present
0: time, my vision is to um, to make four seasons of the gray area. I have a story that is designed to end after four years, which is not to say that the show itself won't end. It's just that that is what that is the time I need to tell this story. I've even talked to people who will be revealed in season four, and getting them on board for you know for two years from now. So, which is crazy, but, uh, but nevertheless, I am very pragmatic and I'm a Boy scout when it comes to organizing and and being practical about these kinds of things. It's kind of a combination of seeing what the reception is. I mean, uh, the, I, just to give you a sense of, of why being oblivious is actually a strength. I wrote one story and produced it called brand awareness. And I specifically designed this so that it would never play on the radio. Okay, I, I just wanted to just have the complete freedom. It deals with radio. It deals with the control between, the, the parallels between like patriarchy and branding. And, uh, and it's a really fun Twilight Zone, Black Bearish kind of story. But I deliberately designed a show that I said, there's no way that anyone will play this on the radio. So you can imagine my surprise when Midnight Audio Theater contacted me out of the blue and said, Not only do I love the gray area, but I want to air this specific story. And I'm like, are you sure Uh, you listen to it right? Uh, You know, um, there's this thing called the FCC, uh, and and this producer, who is incredible, Kathleen. She uh, she actually took it upon herself to edit a a one of the, the master file and and make it so that it could actually. So she just bleeped out some of the, you know, she. Bleep out some of the fucks. uh, If I can say that here, (laughs) Uh, you bleep that out. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what your what your what your standards are here. Um, I have sworn already, but hey, it's part of the. It comes with the early edition. Uh, Anyway, uh, the um, she she took it upon herself to bleep all the stuff out, and it played on the radio, and that was a huge surprise and a completely a tremendous honor because midnight uh, midnight audio theater is um is has been around for many years and i have listened to that show and so you have to kind of like accept some of the little expected curveballs that that come and and adapt your strategy uh, which is largely making stuff and getting better at doing that and expanding and evolving and just sort of, uh, factoring those things in but not you know and and allowing it to so both inform and divigate your particular direction, your trajectory. Do I have, I mean, I have, a, I have, um, I have an idea for another series that I really want to make, but uh, that's, that's contingent upon um, time. I mean, and right now it's all gray area all the time. If I, I do want to actually um, create a, a, a situation where I can be helping other people to produce audio drama i want to i I would love how about like, a model uh, like yeah, i the media?
1: i'm sorry how about like the gimlet, gimlet media's model and having several shows is that something that you'd aspire to to having and running this full yeah time? yeah i
0: i would i would love to, look i mean i would love to um, to do that i mean i i would like to create a situation in which i could hypothetically produce like three to four groundbreaking audio dramas from from completely new and oft and marginalized voices who who are extraordinarily talented and get them to do something that is pushing the boundaries of of what audio drama and narrative can be doing. I would love to do that at some point, but I'm right now I'm sort of doing that within the framework of of the gray area in in the sense that I, I I mean we have talent from all sorts of different backgrounds all sorts of different uh, ethnicities and places of the world i i mean I, I on the casting notice i i specifically state if you have not been cast send in an audition reel if you have been misunderstood please send in an audition reel i do not want to be making something that is the typical sort of vanilla cookie cutter kind of entertainment. I am not interested in doing that. I mean, I like to entertain and I like to have a good time like anybody else. And certainly there are those commonalities, but it is our obligation to, as I said at the very beginning, to respond and to allow the culture to take us in and in order for us to create New stuff that is that is going to push things along further. It is our duty and our obligation as artists, as as everything. I, as I had said before, so would I. Would I look if um if Hulu or Amazon or HBO were to call me tomorrow and said, "Hey Ed, I would like to uh, turn the gray area into a TV series," I would be prepared. <laughs> I'll just say that uh, I, I would love to, to 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 go into that, but at the same time, I am very realistic. And I assume, and in the meantime, I'm having a blast, I'm having a ball, and my actors are having a blast and having a ball, and I am going to focus on that. But, you know, needless to say, I am prepared for a lot of potential development and a lot of potential opportunities. Uh, and uh, a lot of that is is not only just considering these these questions when you're making something, but also having the ability to be decisive which I really am I don't like to dilly dally I like to decide because when you decide you progress if you spend all of your time you know wondering whether something's going to get done it's never going to get done Um, and that by the way is also why I'm able to carry out these uh, Sisyphean logistics (laughs) Mm. it's all about deciding all about deciding deciding and being oblivious Uh, that's probably not what you uh, wanted to hear (laughs) or expected to hear but uh yeah and it is a treasure trove for all of the amazing shows that are out there i mean there we've we've actually made an attempt to chart how many audio dramas that are out there and there are roughly i think 200 250 presently in production mm-hmm. so i mean this is only going to get bigger and and we're going to definitely be like i think you know in in the next couple of years audio drama is going to um is really going to be, I think, a a very serious part of podcasting. I mean, we're starting to see things like uh, Homecoming and Sandra and, uh, of course, The Signal and The Message and Steal the Stars. So we're starting to see like major um, players uh, produce and, um, to varying effect, audio dramas that... Uh, Part of their particular operation and there's the the one stubborn resistance. We're facing right now is that a lot of uh, media covers podcasting uh, and despite the fact that like you know hundreds of thousands of people listen to audio drama we've got the numbers okay we've got the libsyn stats these shows are being listened to and yet despite that you know the media has not been as open or as receptive to audio drama as it can and as it should be because this is only growing i have seen my audience grow even right now i mean i'm not producing it i mean i'm producing but i'm not putting out anything because i have to produce it i am still seeing like you know thousands of people come to listen to the show and it's incredible and i'm I get email messages old, I, I get numbers, people Ed? um contacting me about the questions
1: Ed, sorry, sorry sorry to cut you off is it was are you able to give more concrete numbers you said thousands of people was that per day or how long how much how often is that
0: Oh, they're, they're like, oh, dude. There's like thousands of people. Like sometimes every day, sometimes every, every week. I mean, sometimes what happens is like someone will discover you, and then you'll get this. Uh, you know, it's it's and and they'll, the thing is also word of mouth. Word of mouth actually like loves something. They will send all their friends to it. Uh, as I have learned, it's <laughs> like there are a lot. I think what we are underestimating in terms of um, uh, the internet is is how people share content or share i mean they like to pass along like hey there's this really you know really cool little thing that not only a few people know about it it's like it's like a restaurant you know it's like hey uh so, there's this great you know rack of lamb with some uh, with a nice sort of risotto sauce, and well, actually, that's probably a bad. Uh, college, but you know what I mean um, so hey, and no one knows about it. People actually like really like the past so stuff like that, and I think that that is underestimated. so I think there's not really as much of a difference between, say a good solid non-fiction podcast with a with a major audience and any a, any a fiction podcast i know from i've seen the numbers of other audio dramatists and it definitely can match a, a radiotopia show the the difference is, is that it's just not being talked about and it probably should be because that's only going to result in more awesome audio dramas and that resulted in this being a a bigger part of our culture and and it, and it will be. I really have faith that it will be because it's just it's been doing nothing but growing in the last, like especially in the last year. And it's really, it's a very exciting time to be an audio
1: dramatist. I'm sure there'll be a Netflix for audio drama one day as well. So I'm sure there's gonna be an audio podcast, um, sorry, a Netflix for audio, audio drama,
0: for sure. Oh, uh, there are the people who are planning that. I mean, I you know, believe me, if uh, I I am privy to a lot of um, developments in the field, and there are there are things like that that I've been invited to, and you know, there are there are networks being built, and there are advertising uh, networks that are being built. So uh, this is all this. I mean, there are advertising networks that exist now. So this these structures are being put in place. There are um, our efforts to provide. Uh, side revenue for audio dramas right now by uh, by putting them and creating different versions of them, packaging them in in different formats. So this uh, this is all being considered. And what is fast what is really quite heartening is that for the most part, uh, other audio drama people tend to be really cool. There are a few competitive types uh, and who like to squeeze people out, but you know you just find your you find your people. And it's kinda of like a really sort of chill party. And uh and, and I just like to keep things chill, relaxed and work with people in whatever capacity who who match that. And you know, it works out really well.
1: So Cool. Watch this space, everyone. So thanks thanks again for your time and I appreciate
0: it. Hey, thanks thanks for allowing me to yap as long.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's it's very feel that's very interesting to hear, so thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.
0: Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. 5-Hour Tea, caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight from the makers of 5-Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row.